Welcome back to Digital Forensics in Real Life. I'm your host, Kim Bradley. Before we dive into today's episode, just a quick reminder that voting is open for the Forensic Forecast Awards, and DFIRL has been nominated for DFIR Web Show of the Year. If you like the show, please give us a vote or a review wherever you're listening to help others find the show. And thank you. Today's guest is Aaron Sparling, a veteran of the Portland Police Bureau, here to discuss his work on the 2018 murder case of Daniel Brophy. Daniel was killed by his wife, Nancy Crampton Brophy, at the Oregon Culinary Institute, where he worked as an instructor. Nancy, who published an online essay called How to Murder Your Husband, left a trail of digital evidence in her browser history that Sparling was able to use to prove her guilt and secure her conviction for homicide in May of 2022. This case involved a lot of digital evidence, from CCTV video footage to online searches for ghost guns. So with that, let's hear from Aaron about this complex case. Hi, Aaron. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Great. Thanks for being here today. No, thanks for having me. I'm super excited. When I first heard about this case, I thought I really need to talk to this investigator, this examiner, and find out exactly what went on because it sounded so intriguing. And I know that it's already been made into like a movie or a book, right? Uh, well, yeah, I think there was a, a made-for-TV movie on, I want to say like Lifetime Network. I don't I don't watch television, but I do know that Sybil Shepard played the suspect, which I thought was kind of interesting. So the ongoing joke was I was going to have them use Ryan Gosling as my cast, but of course that didn't work out. Well, yeah. that, that would have been great, right? That would have been great, yeah. So tell me how you became involved with this case. The case goes back to 2018, and I was just called to come to a crime scene where basically a it was a it was a cooking school in uh, Southwest Portland. It's really in the downtown corridor in a in a neighborhood called Degoose Hollow neighborhood, uh, but really just outside of the downtown corridor in Southwest Portland, where it was a cooking school. It was a Saturday morning. Um, I believe, I want to say it was around June. It was really sunny. I remember it was super sunny that day. And the students had come in and found one of the cooking instructors had been shot uh, and killed uh, inside the kitchen. And he was known to get there before the students, kind of open the school, get it kind of set up for the students. Um, And then that, of course, activated the Portland Police Bureau and the homicide unit. And then I, at the time, we were still building out our digital forensics lab. It was under construction. So during that time period, myself and another investigator were tasked, we were detailed to the detectives division, and we actually fell under the homicide detail, but we serviced all of the Portland Police Bureau and then the greater Portland metropolitan area. So we were essentially kind of in an on-call position. I was already in an on-call position for another unit that I was already attached to, so it was easy for them to page me out because I was already getting that on-call activation. So I just came out to essentially at first just campus for video and see if there was any mobile devices that needed to be acquired and just do our, you know, traditional sort of walk the scene and collect video. And that's what I did initially on that day. So when you arrive, normally the first thing we as forensic examiners, when we show up, what's the first thing we're looking for? Yeah, yeah, for us, I'm looking for just anything that the investigator wants. But for us, for me, it was video. Like I was, I was tasked with sort of walking the ingress and egress of the area, campus, all the businesses for any external facing cameras. Luckily enough, I did find a pizza restaurant that was open or they were open, but they were prepping for opening. And they had an internal camera that actually covered their, their main 
dining area, but then actually went out onto one of the main streets that was able to capture some of the traffic that went by both foot and vehicle traffic. And that vehicle traffic footage was actually useful later in the investigation. So did you find a cell phone? That's often, that's our next thing, you know, does somebody yeah. have a cell phone? Yeah, so the, the victim had a cell phone, in, which was an iPhone, ended up, uh, you know, basically getting a advanced logical of that phone and passing that off to the investigators. But other than that, there was no other digital devices that were really acquired on scene during the, the event. Okay, so you have this digital evidence to go on, but you've got an investigative team, right? So yep. you're you're the examiner in this. So you're able Correct. to take the the digital evidence, go to do the examination while they continue on with the investigative part, right? Exactly. And that's kind of how we had set it up. I know that each agency, especially, you know, if we're talking about, you know, digital forensics in the law enforcement realm. They kind of have to cater to what their resources are. You know, the Portland Police Bureau being a large agency, um, I mean, I think at the time we were like the 25th largest city in the country, definitely would classify it as, I mean, we're not as big as like NYPD, obviously, or, or LAPD, but it's a mid-sized city that's quite large um, in a large metropolitan area. When we established our digital forensics, we use more of a customer service-based model. So we are not the lead investigator. So we have no investigative stake in it, which I think is really good because it kind of reduces some of those sort of logical fallacies and biases that can be driven, like that you see also in the intelligence world, where you have to separate yourself from the intelligence and take a step back. But it can also be a little more complicated because there's items that might be relevant or interesting to the investigator that mean absolutely nothing to the forensic examiner because there's no context to build off of. So our model is we get the devices, we work for that investigative unit, and we do whatever is best for their investigation, meaning whatever information they need, we get that data to them um, so that they can work through it. And then it's kind of multi-phase and they'll come back to us and we'll start examining maybe certain artifacts of interest or help guide that investigative process. Right. And that's uh, an approach that a lot of agencies don't necessarily have the option to do because smaller agencies, you may be the investigator and the examiner. Um, but in your instance, that you're very fortunate, very similar to the agency I came from. But it's very good because from that perspective, you're able to be that forensic examiner doing those forensic processes and separate yourself out from basically the case and the exam, making those really two separate things that are going on here, right? Yeah, and I think that's I mean, I think it's incredibly important to do that. Again, like the you know, like everything in life comes at a cost. Like every decision you make, there's some sort of cost you have to uh, that comes with that decision. And when we made this decision, we understood that by separating the digital forensic examiner or analyst, whichever verbiage you want to use or 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 describe yourself as from the actual investigative process, we do lose some context, but therefore we're also not driven by any investigative biases as well, which I think is kind of nice. Right. So tell me what you did in this exam. Yeah. So, um, for, for the, for the mobile phone, it was really just straightforward. It was, it was, it was just kind of your traditional get as much data off the phone and get it to the hands of the investigator so that they could start going through it and looking for relative data. Um, and that was kind of it for a while. And then as they went through their investigative process, like really working through the case, it wasn't until a couple months later when they actually 
conducted some search warrants. And it was in the process of those search warrants that they recovered the three computers that I ultimately ended up examining, which is where a lot of the data that was useful during the investigation and during the trial. So did these three uh, computers, did they belong to the victim? They did not. They belonged to the victim's wife, who ultimately ended up becoming the suspect. Um, okay. And yeah, so uh, it was the victim's wife. Um, and so there ended up being three total laptops, two that were found inside the home. And I believe another one was found inside of like maybe a storage unit or something like that. Yeah. Okay. So you're you're going through your, your typical examination uh, processes, right? You You get the computers and then what are you doing? Yeah, what was kind of nice about this, I think, this case was a little interesting in that there was there was some time between the crime, right, and then the actual the execution of the search warrant, so the actual acquiring of these three devices, which allowed the investigators to have more data points to go off of. So did something um, a little unique, which we, we were always kind of doing unique things, kind of one-offs to sort of cater to what the investigative needs of that particular case was or what that particular unit needed. So in this case, I was able to stand up a forensic workstation and dedicate it specifically to this one case. So luckily for us, again, a little bit spoiled, we had the resources where I could just take a dedicated forensic workstation, take it offline, um, silo it, basically so that it was just independent, stood alone, and dedicate it 100% to this case. And so ended up processing, imaging the two laptops um, that I got initially, ended up imaging those and processing them uh, on that forensic workstation with a preset word list. So we had, I think there was about six, you know, word lists. And there were things like Glock and murder and um, things associated to a homicide that was involved with a firearm and uh, used Magna Axiom to process the, the the initial case. And instead of doing a portable case, because I was able to have it as a standalone and because the data set was so large, it I was then able to work with the investigative team, which was made up of a few detectives and analysts, and they were able to then query the essentially the database and then bookmark and tag those items of interest um, that either were of evidentiary value or items of interest for the case. And so they were able to work through it that way. And then I worked more as like a consultant to help them guide them through the process. Because, I mean, I don't know, your listeners may or may not know, but Magna Axiom is pretty user-friendly, whether you are a forensic analyst or an investigator, you can kind of wrap your head around it from a 30,000 foot view pretty quick. So that was kind of nice because they were able to kind of they were able to get on the keyboard, start searching for things that were within the parameters of their search warrant, within the parameters of their investigation, and then kind of go from there. So just uh, so our listeners know, to, to close in a, a few gaps here, so you processed this, uh, these forensic images that you generated from these laptops, processed those uh, images within Magnet Axioms, which the tool you used, and then it provides basically uh, this 
as you said, user interface that's friendly for folks to be able to go through and take a look. So, for example, it may put all of these categories, such as your pictures, your communication, your email, things along those lines. It's separating those things out to make it very easy, right? Correct. So then you are able to just sit there and basically, you know, when they find something, then you're able to do that deeper dive since you're actually that analyst. You're able to do that deeper dive and do that further explanation for them because of your training experience. And, that, and that's exactly how we have it set up, right? So in this particular case, the majority of the items of interest or things that were bookmarked were related to browser history, right? So internet-related artifacts, um, mostly inside of, uh, inside of Chrome. And so once they had bookmarked um, all of these items of interest, then I was able to then go in and, again, like you said, do the deep dive, if you will, start correlating all these different data points, being able to validate that they were where they were supposed to be, that the data was actually there, and then also be able to take something that can be a little esoteric, like some sort of like obscure data that's sitting in like this SQLite database and be able to put that into a more generic verbiage for a jury to understand, right? Or for the district attorney's office to understand for the whole prosecution team. And that's kind of, again, like one of the things I'd like to highlight that I think was really cool about this case and some of the other cases that we've worked is there's really sort of three shareholders that are involved in either the success or failure of these cases. And one is going to be your digital forensics unit that's doing the digital forensics for you. The other is going to be your investigative team, whether it's some sort of streets crimes team or a gang team or a dope team, or if it's like a detective's division, and then also your prosecution team, right? So all three came together and worked collaboratively to, to sort of guide and mold how, how we were going to tackle some of these. Because there was a lot of artifacts that were tagged, and then we had to kind of narrow those down and, and, and make sense of you know, which is which which ones are really relevant and which ones, you know, have context. Right. And it, it you're right. It is a very, very much a team approach when you're doing these types of cases. Right. Especially one that's going to end up in trial like yours. For did. sure. And you you have to be able to provide the best artifacts or the best digital evidence that you can and making sure that that investigator understands exactly what this is saying. But then also when you when you go to court, you're you're having to do some explanation and you are you're educating everyone. Then, you know, you have to make sure your prosecutor knows your judge knows your jury knows. And even, you know, on some level, you need to make sure that what you've explained that the defense knows well enough to even if they have questions to ask you a good question. For sure. For sure. And I think one of the things, too, that's kind of interesting um, that that I think is really important for especially for new examiners when they're starting to work with the prosecution team is not it's easy to get excited about the things that you find. Right. Because it's like, you know, you get those fist pump moments. You're like, aha. But then I think you got to reel it in a little bit. and You got to also you have your due diligence to explain, to take the time to explain to especially to your prosecutorial team what is possible and what's not possible. So they usually don't want to hear what's not possible, but it's important to explain those things or make sure that when you are explaining things and you're trying to break it down in those sort of more simple terms that you can frame it to like, this is actually what it is. Like make sure that you want to make sure that you're not trying to, that you're not explaining something that it's not. And that can be a little tricky because it's sometimes it's hard to reel in what is this, artifact and what does it mean and really what does this mean and what does that mean and that's that's the questions they'll ask and so you have you have to take the time to be like okay what this really means is this and that goes back to what you were saying with you know being a I think being a good witness 
expert witness on the stand when the defense, there was a couple times when the defense would ask me questions and and I would be the, and I, my response was, well, if what you're really trying to ask me is this, then the answer is this, right? Because it can even be, it can be confusing for everyone. And so I think it's important that you are incredibly like reasonable with your responses, that you frame it in a very accurate you know, way. And that's, that's what we definitely had to do with this case, because as you know, browser related artifacts can be a little esoteric. Right. So you, you helped the investigators and you did your searches. You, you all looked through a lot of these searches. You said it was very, very heavy within the uh, browser artifacts and uh, these keyword hits, right? So tell me what you saw. Yeah. So we, you know, what's interesting about this particular case is it was, Again, it really was like everyone likes, oh, you know, it's a team effort. This really was a team effort, right? So the detectives and investigators did a phenomenal job and the prosecutors did a phenomenal job. And then there was another analyst, Kelsey, who did a really, really good job with putting together the recovered video footage, like, you know, external video surveillance footage that was picked up around the time of the incident as well as some of the you know, mobile CDR records and things that she had done and putting that all together and then correlating that with the data that I found on the laptop. Because at the end of the day, a lot of it, the evidence was all circumstantial. So we never actually had the physical murder weapon or we didn't necessarily have all of it, right? So what we found in the browser-related searches was we found the purchasing of a barrel and slide for a Glock that matched the same model of Glock that they had owned, this husband and wife. Also found references to things like ghost guns. Um, there was, a, And then there was an actual ghost gun kit that was purchased, and that was found in a storage container. And there were things like how to clean a Glock, uh, how to load a Glock, how much does a Glock kick back, Just so, and some interesting searches that were done. Mm-hmm. Those might not be the exact, but those are kind of paraphrasing what those searches are that built some really interesting context. And then also the time frame with which these searches were done also built some interesting context as well. So you felt pretty confident that based on this digital evidence and what you'd found, that it was indeed the wife who was doing these searches. Yes. So there was only one user associated to all three of the devices. And then Kind of like we talk about it a lot in mobile, and I'll be the first to say I do not do a lot of mobile forensics. In my lab, in my previous lab at the Portland Police Bureau, my partner, he focused 100%, Detective Corey Stenzel, focused 100% on mobile and was fabulous at it. And so anything mobile-related went to Corey, and anything computer-related went to me. We, we, weren't a, we were lucky enough to not have to be jack-of-all-trades. We could be more subject-matter experts, and we found that we got our better bang for our buck or at least we think so that way, and that's how we structured it. So, But one of the things that I know that the mobile community talks a lot about is pattern of life, and so I just used similar pattern of life type analysis in these searches and would look you know, around these searches to see, okay, is there anything that would be closely, more closely related to someone else being on the computer, or in this case, would it be more associated to our suspect. And the pattern of life all was kind of consistent. So it didn't look to me like you had multiple users hopping on. Not to say that there wasn't, but definitely around the time of these searches, it looked very similar to be the same person. Gotcha. So you've got all these searches that have been done. You've got a murder weapon. You've got a search that's been done for a similar type of murder weapon, right? Yeah. So we we technically, 
I mean, we got to be a little careful. We technically didn't actually per se have the murder weapon. So the theory, the theory that was presented at trial was that the there was a slide and barrel that was purchased. And as you can imagine, if you were to remove the slide and barrel of your original Glock, put on the slide and barrel that you purchased, do your crime, then go back and swap that out and then dispose of the barrel and slide that you used to do the crime, it's easy to hand over that original weapon and the ballistics wouldn't match, right? Right. There was some, there, there was a heads up when the detectives, you know, went to interview the suspect, the wife, uh, and asked if they had any firearms. She was like, well, yes, we do. We have this, this Glock. And he was heads up to notice that when they took possession of it, that it looked to him as though the, the slide wasn't properly seated. So that also came up, which was very interesting, which was a, a heads up catch by uh, our investigative team, which kind of helped lens to the other things that, you know, basically building the case that like, hey, you know, we don't have this original slide and barrel, but, you know, we've got all this circumstantial evidence that sort of points to this is plausible. Right. So she she obviously was not a ballistics expert, uh, She but she did some searching here trying to figure out maybe how to cover some tracks from a ballistic standpoint. Sure, sure. One of the reasons why I think the media maybe gravitated so heavily to it is she was a self-published author who wrote these self-published, I want to say they're like romance kind of novels, if you will. I think you can find them if you were to Google them. One of them was, and don't quote me on this, but I think you'd find it in in some Google searches, was like, How to Murder Your Husband. And so, you know, of, of course, that drew some interest as well. So, yeah, there was all kinds of things that made this case very interesting. So that's one of the stories that she's written then, right? That's my understanding. I never okay. actually read it, but that's my understanding, yes. So I will be honest with you. When I first saw about this case for the first time, and I, it was they were calling it the How to Murder Your Husband case in quotes, and I thought some examiner somewhere has been doing some looking through some internet history because I thought, I, I'm wondering if this person's actually searched for that, but that's not actually why this was important. It was important because she'd written something similar. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, she'd written something similar. Again, I hadn't, I had, did not read any of her published works. I mean, I, I definitely came across, you know, some of her published works that she had on her laptops, but um, I didn't read them. Yeah. Right. So then, this, you know, makes you look a little bit deeper than maybe into her and into all of these circumstances. So, as you said, a lot of this is just circumstantial evidence that you got. And so you truly are, I mean, you said it's a very much a team approach, but you're having to go through this, uh, looking at everything, painting the entire picture of the crime, right? Because I've never seen in my nearly, you know, two decades of, you know, police work, I've never seen a case where the picture was painted quite like this. And, and a lot of it came from digital evidence, not just from the computers. Again, you know, I got to give a, a really big shout out to Kelsey, who now is the lab manager for PPB for the Portland Police Bureau for the Digital Forensics Unit. She did a fabulous job of, of putting together, stitching together the external cameras that were collected in the area. And the reason why that was so important is because they were able to capture a vehicle that is identical to their vehicle with a person very similar in stature driving the vehicle, right? So, I mean, you couldn't, you can't say with absolute certainty, but um, definitely putting it all together, it would be really hard to refute it. And, you know, just the way she was able to capture the video, stitch it together and show 
the ingress and egress, which makes perfect sense. And then, again, some of the cell tower data stuff that she had testified to and put together that was of digital evidence put the suspect out. I don't want to get this part wrong, but I believe it was out towards a gun range at one point prior to. So, you know, there's some interesting, there was definitely a lot of digital evidence that was brought together, like you said, to create this holistic or overall picture that kind of puts that puts it all together without having a lot of our cases. I mean, they're softballs, right? Like a lot of them, a lot of times it, it, it's literally there's text messages of people like admitting to doing it, or there are photos on the device of them either engaging in the crime or the phone puts them at the scene of the crime. And then the other thing too is our lab, um, we do have a very robust ICAC task force in the, the metropolitan area, and my lab was not part of that. We didn't do a lot of ICAC, and we did a couple. They were just very special cases, but a lot of those are pretty straightforward, you know, from talking to my ICAC colleagues where it's, you know, yeah, you run this database and it's hard to refute these thousand photos when you go to look at them. They pretty much are what they are and there's no getting around that and it's on your device and, oh, look, you know, we've got a cyber tip that you downloaded it. This was not that, you know, this was completely the opposite. It was, it was a lot of investigative work and putting the pieces together and making sure that you could generate the right narrative that fit what ultimately probably happened, so... Right. So, and Internet Crimes Against Children is ICAC, just for those of those listening. So tell me then, I'm guessing you had a good timeline, and all of this digital evidence played into that. So we know when he was shot, uh, approximately, right? We do, We, We had some video, right? We did, yep. Okay, so that's showing her going close to the school? Yeah, so it, it, it shows a vehicle and a person that close that, that resembles the suspect in the area um, during the time of the homicide. All right, so yeah. then the, the homicide occurs, um, someone, someone finds the victim, you're able to go in, you get that digital evidence, and then you know all of your investigative team does their work, you're looking at the phone, but then how long elapsed there before you were able to get in touch with these uh, laptops? I want to say it was, I believe that the actual, the homicide occurred, I feel like it was June. It could have been July, but I feel like it was June. And I think those search warrants, the first set of search warrants, I want to say were August. So it was about two months. So, I mean, it had, you know, I had responded to other homicides, you know, post that and was, you know, knee deep in other cases. And so I just thought, you know, it was, you know, one of those things that, just did what needed to do on day one. And there would be, if there was any follow-up that it would come, I never thought that it was going to be, you know, laptops being delivered and um, her phone being delivered, which it's my understanding that she ended up getting a new phone at some point. And so, um, as you can imagine, there wasn't a whole lot of data on that phone. So that in and of itself, like one of the things too that I talk about with, especially with the prosecutors, um, not so much with the investigators, because I think they kind of get it a little bit more, but the prosecutors are starting to catch on to more. Is like the absence of data can be more telling than, than the data itself, right? So these these weird gaps that are just not normal, right? Like especially nowadays, because everybody's on their devices and everybody's interacting. And then, you know, um, to have these large gaps of just no activity at all or no data at all is, um, I would say... I don't want to say troublesome, but it definitely should raise, you should ask some, some more, some further questions and you should definitely start looking into like, why is that, you know? Right. 
So when this all goes to trial, then uh, we have our suspect, which is the wife, Correct. and we have all uh, of the searches that she's done, and we've got you know some background of um, of what you know potentially that that she's you know written about prior to, uh, but what has occurred prior to this this homicide is she's done all of these searches and she's done a lot of prep. So about how much time did she start prepping or do you know? That I don't really know. There's There, there was definitely more to the investigation. And again, I don't get, I typically try not to get too involved in the investigations. I just try to stay focused on what, what I'm being tasked with. But it's my understanding that during that time frame also that the investigators noticed was she was taking out a lot of life insurance policies in large sums of money, which seemed to be kind of irregular or just kind of not not what normal married couples would have, I guess. So that that was something that was done prior to the actual day of the crime. And then yeah, it was just it was just again, it was, you know, YouTube searches, internet searches. There was, you know, the bidding on eBay to get what she needed, the purchasing of the ghost gun. So there was th- there was that kind of prep involved. In regards to, you know, I don't have I don't have any knowledge in in regards to how often or if she did frequent any sort of gun range or training or anything like that. I couldn't speak to that, but I can speak to just you know, local gun show interest, things like that. Right. So, and this is a person who doesn't really seem to be an enthusiast otherwise. Correct. Yeah, I, I would not. I would not picture this person to be not not to be like you know stereotyping people, but it did not strike me as someone who would be a gun enthusiast at all. I think one of the things too that kind of made this case a little more interesting, and maybe why the media grabbed onto it so much, was just they were older couple, right? And so I I, I don't want to know. I don't know how, exactly how old, but this isn't like a 30, 40 year old, 50 year old couple, right? So they uh, adult children lived in a really kind of quiet part of uh, Southwest Portland. He was, you know, again, a chef and, you know, gardener and, and things of that nature. So it's like, it's like your next door neighbor almost. I mean, I don't want to, I, I don't want to do them injustice and overly date them, but almost like, you know, grandfatherly and grandmotherly, you know, are very close to, you know, coming into that age, if you will, you know? Right. I see something that says she was 72. Yes. That sounds probably about right. Yeah. So, yeah. So that could be very, very much a grandmotherly age. I think. Right. So we have all of this digital evidence. You end up going to court. You end up testifying. The prosecution team, I'm sure they had to do this this timeline as well, right? And they had to, you know, bring in all of this digital evidence that you have, all of the investigators. They put all this together, right? So tell me, when you went to court, what were your impressions of, of what all was? And I know that you just probably got to sit in there while you were doing your portion of it. But tell, tell me your thoughts of going through that. The whole thing was a process. Uh, so like I said, I believe it was 2018 was when the crime actually occurred, but trial wasn't until like May of 2022. So you're yeah. talking four years later. Now, part of that had to do with the pandemic, with COVID, clearly shutting down some of the you know the courts and the judicial system slowed way down. I think that was just happened probably everywhere across the country. But this case, regardless, I think of COVID or not, it had there was you know there was a lot of motions that were taking place there was motions to not bring in on some of the digital evidence because of how damaging it probably was or is but it, the, at the end of the day you know the evidence is the evidence is the evidence the amount of work that went like this case never really went away and so it and what i mean by that is it was a long process so it was 
almost, you know, almost four years, I believe, until it actually made it to trial. And easily the last year, a lot of, you know, meetings went into place, really honing down uh, what digital evidence, I, I would say, you know, what hill are you willing to die on, right? Because, you know, we can't introduce everything. I mean, you could, but it would be pretty unrealistic. And I don't think that the courts would be too happy if we, as examiners, were introducing everything we find, right? So, you know, we had to really narrow down the scope um, to what was relevant and then work on spending, spent a great deal of time hammering out those particular artifacts. And in this case, it was predominantly browser-related artifacts um, that helped sort of piece together, like what we were talking about earlier, piecing together some of the research that one would do to maybe carry out a crime like this. And then also there's validation that goes along with that. So I spoke earlier about using Axiom as the primary investigative platform or, or software for the investigator. And that's because that tool is very, in my humble opinion, is very investigator friendly. But it was not the only tool that we used in this case. It just really helped get the case going and helped get the case going in the right direction so that we could start building context. Once we had artifacts tagged and bookmarked and we were kind of building sort of our buckets of what we wanted to dive deeper in, then I used other tools as well to start validating that. So I would validate the tool, I'd validate the findings inside Axiom and then I used autopsy as well as some command line tools, as well as like just exporting out certain artifacts and then just building strings-based text files and grepping through them to look for the data as well. There's a few command line tools that I used to absolutely validate the findings because that's incredibly important, especially for going to trial. There was no way I was going to hang my hat just on a single tool. Um, no offense to Magnet, but I was definitely not going to hang my hat on a single tool. So um, I, that took a lot of that that is very methodical um, work, as you know, and it's it, it's it's super important, incredibly important, and it's an absolute must. It has to be done, and that takes a lot of time, but it has to be done because it's so incredibly important. So that required you know some meetings with both the prosecution team and the investigative team to say, hey. I'm going to throw out an arbitrary number. We have, an, we have 100 things bookmarked. We need to narrow this down to maybe like the 40 that you're willing to go to war on. And, you know, which which because we had to narrow those down because I had explained to them all the work that goes into validating every single one of those and then also to be able to explain every single one of them. Because even though they're internet or browser-related artifacts, they're, for the most part, you know, there may be, again, I'll use an arbitrary number because I don't remember the exact number of categories, but you might have eight or 12 different categories that you have to kind of explain what they are, right? So, um, and how that's relevant to what you're doing, right? So like a favicon, like explaining what that is and why that might be important or explaining like what a, you know, just something that's been cached in the Chrome history versus a type search versus, mm -hmm. you know, an autofill search, like being able to really narrow those down and explain just exactly what those artifacts mean and how they relate, um, especially with browser related artifacts, like that can be, it's very time consuming and it's very circuitous. Like there's no straight line to those um, because we love to say in forensics, right? It depends, but man, does it ever depend when it comes to the browser? 
at least in right. my humble opinion. Yeah. It, it, it does depend. I mean, so much does depend on something else. I mean, there's so many different ways that you can look at something or that, you know, this, this might be the case if something else had happened. I mean, you can, if then something to death, right? Right. Right. And then, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, um, I guess at the end of the day, you know, there is a, there was a case, I believe in Florida that I never wanted to be like repeat. Right. And that had to do with browser relating, um, the Casey Anthony case. So, I mean, I kind of use that as like 100%, like I'm going to check, double check, triple check, because I, this is a high profile case. That's getting a lot of media attention across the country. Um, big outlets are picking it up. You know, a lot of outlets were there. Um, it the whole thing was televised. And so I was like, there was no way, you know, one of the nice things about this community is, is we share lessons learned. And so, you know, looking at a, a previous case where a less, you could take that as a lesson learned and then just push forward and just grow as a community and be like, Hey, I don't want to ever replicate that. Right. And you know, that is part of this forensic process or presenting that forensic evidence in court and, and, you know, in forensics, you know, it needs to be replicated, you know, be able to be replicated your results right. do, And, right. and that's why you had to do your due diligence and, and it doesn't always uh, go that way necessarily. But again, you know, learning, learning from others and, you know, that's why there's a lot of case law out there, right? A hundred percent. And, and the replication part is super important too. And I think that that's where, where I talked to the prosecution team as well, where I said, Hey, I want to keep the explanation of these artifacts as basic and as simple as possible so that anyone could, hopefully anyone in the room could kind of understand what we're saying. It's easy for us, especially in this community, because we get so excited, you know, about the, the minutia of it all, or just the geekiness of it all to start geeking out or nerding out on these little nuggets that we find. And it's important, I think, and especially in cases like this, that you take a step back and when you're talking about it, you just talk about it in very basic, generalized terms. And if if it requires you to then become very specific, then do that on the follow-up or the redirect. But um, you know, if you can, try to keep it very, very uh, user-friendly when you're explaining what's happening. Right. And I mean, if you think about it, I mean, the folks that are sitting on the jury, you know, these are folks that that more than likely have no background in computer science and definitely no background in digital forensics, most likely anyway. No. And yeah. And that's where good analogies come in. I found like if you can have good analogies to sort of give them real life examples that is outside the world of zeros and ones, that's really helpful. And so there was analogies that had to be, you know, derived for this particular case as well, especially when you're again, I keep coming back to browser related artifacts because it was just, I mean, we all love the, you know, I'll take, photos any day or I'll take, you know, user, user attribution any day, but man, the browser, oh, it's just, it can be such a mess. Yeah. It's, there can be a lot that's going on there. So there's a and, lot going on there. Yeah. And different versions of different browsers. So you, you had to do some background information or background research on a lot of those and do your oh, own yeah. probable testing on some of those as well. Oh, for sure. And there was more than one browser used, which made it even more interesting as well, right? So, you know, Chrome wasn't the only browser that was used um, and wasn't the only artifacts that we had to bring in. So, you know, you have to be able to explain that as well. Right. And why they're not all the same. Yeah. And why they're not all the same. And why, why would you be using one and not the other? And, you know, of course, you don't know the answer because you're not the individual, but you kind of have to give, you know, what you think is your best um, assessment as to why that is and make it, you know, make it make sense. Right. So. Right. So 
tell me what happens at the end. So this this trial goes on. About how long does the trial last? Do you remember? Oh, I think it's I think it was like six weeks. Um, I was scheduled to testify, and I was there. I testified over two days. I was I was given two full days. Thankfully, I wasn't on the stand for two full days, but I was required to testify at least two days, not including you know motions hearings and stuff like that prior to the trial. There was a, a bunch of that that went on as well, but I believe it was a total of six weeks. Okay. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And so ultimately, ultimately at the end, she was found guilty by a jury of her peers. And um, I don't know what the actual sentencing was, but it was, it's, it's significant. It's, it's very, it was very significant. So. Right. And she's an older lady. She is. Yeah. I, I even, you know, and I don't know what her health is like. So, you know, I, I would, I would, I would think it would be fair to say that she'll probably spend the rest of her adult life in prison. So. Right. Okay. Well, good job on this one. I appreciate you sharing it with us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for being here with us. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of DFIRL. And thanks to Aaron for being here with us and sharing this case. Digital Forensics in Real Life is a production of Magnet Forensics. This episode was mixed and edited by Phil Frucklidge with production help from Lindsay Ward. Our original theme music is by Rick Andrade. I'm your host, Kim Bradley. Thanks for listening.